Hello and welcome to Conversations with Writers. Talking to writers about what drives them to tell their stories. This is the final episode of our first series of Conversations. As we prepare our second series to launch in a few weeks' time, we thought we'd take the opportunity to share a few extra pieces of Conversations cut for time from some of our guests so far. Coming up, Patty Miller talks of discovering the cave art of Cro-Magnon Man, and Stella Prize winner Heather Rose shares her keys to co-authoring her internationally successful kids series. But first, author Maria Lewis takes the time to tell me how her first experiences with murder as a young journalist inform specific sequences of her debut novel, Who's Afraid? There is a moment I think you refer to going out, well, sorry, Tommy goes out with her best friend, who is a crime reporter mm. in the book, and sees her first dead body. Yeah. And the blood soaks into her shoes. Yeah. And she just can't bring herself to keep wearing those shoes. Now, did that also occur yeah. to you? Yeah. No, that literally, that's the same particular incident. It was, um, I'd, I'd covered a murder um, probably about two months before I first saw my first dead body at work. And at that murder, I hadn't had to see their dead body, which was fine. It's just par and parcel. Like, they don't really do this anymore for obvious reasons in the social media age and OH&S, but... In, if you're starting as a newspaper reporter, generally the way they test you out is as a cadet, they throw you in the deep end. The way they do that is by throwing you into police rounds and you either sink or you swim. You can either handle it or you can't. And if you can't, they move you on to say real estate or general rounds or health or whatever that other particular field is. Now, what I didn't know at the time is if you can handle it or you survive in any kind of feasible way, they keep you there for you as long as they can. Yeah. Cause yeah. it's hard to find. To find like to train people up to do police rounds is difficult because back then this was um i mean you had the internet obviously but the way we found out about crimes or cases or things that we would go and cover was the police scanner so i had a portable one that i would take with me and had the different emergency channels programmed into it so you'd be hearing that stuff and you'd hear people chatter and it would just become second nature for you to be doing something but listening to that at the same time as well as like if you'd hear a number and you would know particular codes, you'd know the code for a homicide, for an armed robbery, et cetera, et cetera. So I'd covered a murder. Um, it was in Logan at a park and it was two brothers who'd, who'd killed a guy um, at a party over a chick um, with a bunch of different weird butcher's implements. They'd gone like knife, meat cleaver, the whole situation, really completely overkill. Um, and then the second incident was a few months later and it was a car accident. And I ended up getting there um, before I got there before the ambos, so before the ambulance. Ambos is like the journalism, uh, I guess, like slang for it. Got there before the ambos had because I picked it up on the scanner really early. It was only the fireys that were there, and um, I, I knew the guy who was the the scene commander, and he's he'd cornered off the area, and there were quite a lot of people hurt, but only one woman had been killed, and. Um, he took me around the scene just quickly and it, it was amazing to me because I didn't know that uh, a human body could spread that much. Like it, you honestly, well, I honestly thought it was like four people had been killed, not one person. And there was so much blood that I thought I had a nosebleed for the week afterwards because like, I could just smell, I could just smell blood. Like it was just, almost like a bushfire, how it right. burns into your nasal passages. Right, and exactly. Like and there was a lot of fire and smoke as well. So it was like a very vivid scene, but he was taking me around the scene. And I remember at the time I was wearing these flat shoes that were really like practical flats that you'd wear, but they were just lined with like a layer of uh, kind of like brown satin. And 
I was just walking and doing my thing and taking notes and stuff like that and just trying to keep my shit together, um, which I actually found quite easy at the time. It was afterwards that, it, it, you know, that you really start to digest what you've seen and got back in the car with the photographer a few hours later and driving back to the office. I looked down at my shoes and I realized the blood had soaked into the satin of the shoes and I was, I just had to throw them out. Like I just, you can't, like, what do you do? Put them through the washer and hope for the best. Because every time I'd be looking at those shoes and be thinking like, oh yeah, I remember that time, like I had blood soak into the satin of those shoes and a bit of a woman's throat got stuck on them. You know, like it's forever embedded, imprinted in that shoe. So I was like, yeah, no, these, these can go. These shoes can go. <laughs> When I spoke to Patty Miller earlier this year, I asked her about her time spent travelling through Paris and the early discovery of cave art created by Cro-Magnon Man. Ah, oh, that's interesting, yes. Um, I was in the south of France, which sounds a bit posh, but it's just that I, I do go to Paris each year to teach a memoir workshop. And I was down in the southwest because a friend of mine has a, a farmhouse down there. And in fact, one of my sons ended up marrying a girl from down there, so I feel very connected to that place. But uh, one day we went to the Les Aisies, uh area where all of the cave paintings are. They're only 15,000 years ago, not 65,000 years ago like we have here. But I guess because it's my own cultural background, I found that I could connect to it um, very easily. And there were images of uh, bison and ibex and also hands. And I started thinking about the young men. I imagined that they were young men, maybe they weren't, um, who were expressing themselves, who were creating something on the walls of the cave. And it wasn't in a random fashion. They were actually using the, the shape of the caves itself, you know, to create, say, the chest of the bison. So it was it was thoughtful um, expression of their response to their world. And I thought, in a sense, they're creating a kind of memoir. This is their memory of their life and their experience, their awareness of their life, which for me is what memoir is about. So I felt like I was connecting to the minds and hearts of those young men from 15,000 years ago. How do you relate to, to memoir yourself? I mean, you've written several books, um, both of your own experiences and the uniqueness of the places you visited most recently in living a year in Paris. Um, how do you, when you look at something like that cave art, do you feel a connectedness because the need for memoir is so instinctive? I, th I think it is. I'm sure it is, in fact, because memoir is about expressing what it's like to be here in the world. And it seems to me that living is not enough on its own. It's, it's as if it might all just disappear you know, um, Milan Kundera in The Unbearable Lightness of Being said something like, if it hadn't happened twice, maybe it didn't happen at all. But you actually create the twice when you write about it. So you, you create the evidence. It's actually evidence of, of having lived. And I don't think everyone feels the passionate need to write it, but they keep a kind of memoir of themselves in the objects that they have around the house, you know, the, the little ornaments or jewellery or, or children's drawings, all those kinds of things, the kinds of things that you'd run and get if the bushfire came. You wouldn't grab things that cost you lots of money. You would grab those particular things because they constitute a kind of object 
memoir. So I think that need to have a, a record or more evidence of having lived is something that we all need because I think maybe we feel a kind of um, insubstantiality and we look for ways to feel more substantial, more real. And I think writing, or all of art, is one of those ways to say, we, we are here. We were in the world. These are the kinds of things that happened to us. We must be real. So I think it's a kind of, it's actually an existential need, I think. So do you go looking for that when you're travelling? Um, for my own stories, do you mean? Yeah. Um, I don't think so. I, I think that if I was consciously, um, I'm consciously observing the world all the time. I remember my mother saying to me, slightly irritated when I was about 17, um, why can't you just live your life? Why do you always have to watch yourself living it? And I thought, ah, she, she was actually observing me as a writer, that that's what I was doing. But, but if I, I don't do things so that I can write about them. I didn't go to Paris for a year so I could write about it. That seems a little back to front mm. to me. I want to be able to live my life and then if it seems interesting or worthwhile, then I will want to write about it. Or if it seems, not even that, if it seems puzzling to me or disturbing in some way, because I think all writing comes from that little bit of um, grit that um, Patrick White wrote about in Voss. He had one of his characters talking about the little bit of grit in the oyster um, that um, maybe one day it would, it would turn into a pearl. And I remember reading that when I was about 16 and I adopted that little myth as mine, you know, that I just washed about here and there in life, not with any particular purpose, but I did believe there was a little bit of grit in me that, that, might, um, that might produce the pearl. So I tried to, you know, I do, you know, live my life and, and um, you know, and then perhaps write about it. But I also don't think that a good good memoir writing to me doesn't depend on having done exciting and dangerous and fabulous things. You don't have to have sawn your arm off on a mountainside or or, or, or ridden your bike across Africa or anything like that, which, I mean, that makes great copy and it's much easier yeah. for the publicist to get a medium Yes, it attention. makes a quick sale, doesn't oh, it, to get the paragraph it's, it's explanation. Fabulous. And I've had a number of students who've had fabulous, uh, well, extreme stories, um, you know, like being married to a Colombian drug lord or, or um, you know, a father that was a murderer of um, two, uh, two people. Um, so fairly extreme kinds of things. But, and, and they were great, you know, great books. But I think that you, it depends to me on the eye that you have on the world. So some people can be fascinating and interesting about their back garden and other people can be boring about their trip to Russia. So it, to me it depends on the eye, on the consciousness on the world, not on the excitement or extremity of the adventures that you might have. Well, it's quite interesting that in your book you use regular examples, some of it being your own writing, but there's a moment where you're explaining the fact that, and, and we're caught talking, of course, about writing true stories, yes. in which you said, I noticed because I was paying attention. The only reason I mention this is because I was paying attention. Yes. And that's the difference, isn't it? Yes, that's the key to me to good writing. I think that was that was a day many years ago now I was at university and I was walking down to the ferry wharf, I think, and the whole day became alive in a way that was almost pulsing with life because I was paying 
real attention to everything. I think it's that Buddhist idea of, of right attention. I was really paying attention. It just happened. It's one of those gifts that, that, that just happened. But to me, all good writing comes from observation. If you haven't observed it well in the first place, then how can you recreate it on the page? So that's why I think, you know, sometimes I get people from science backgrounds, say, you know, um, who uh, kind of come along and they're a bit embarrassed and say, you know, they're, they're not writers, you know, and, and, and really they, they don't know how to do anything like that at all. They're, they're, they're only scientists. And, and I always say that they've had the perfect training to be a writer because scientists are trained to observe. So anyone who's been trained to observe, I think, has the essential skill to be yes, a writer. And it's very fair to say that certainly at that microscopic level as well. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And, and they do. I, I love that kind of really well-observed um, nature writing, for example, or science writing, any of that writing which is um, about uh, observing the world cleanly and, and clearly. In discussion with Dr. Sarah Edelman and Louise Ramon talking about their book Fighting Teen Anxiety with CBT, Cognitive Behavioural Therapy, we dug deeper into some of the actual steps that people could take to improve their day-to-day behaviours. We also specifically looked at the influence of diet upon the mind. Looking at the book, there's a section on healthy living and healthy lifestyle, so the importance of diet and also getting out and active. Um, could you maybe talk through that, perhaps, just the influence that has on improving the thought processes? These are probably the most basic, simple and important things that, that, that kids can do, and adults, actually, mm. that um, we kind of used to in the past think of the mind and the body as being two separate things, and now we realise that no, body is part of the mind. They are completely interconnected. You can't separate the two. And when, when we are in a distressed state emotionally, physically, that has significant effects on our energy, on our digestion, on our physical processes. And the reverse is also true, that if we don't look after our physical body, that also has an effect on our emotional and mental state. Mm. So we, we know from a lot of research that's been around for a long time that physical ex- exercise is one of the most important things we can do for um, dealing with stress, for um, managing mood, particularly for depression, but even for reducing anxiety, frustration, anger, um, and generally maintaining mental health. More recent research, and I'm talking about in the last five to ten years, is be- has really started finding um, the effects of diet as being also equally important to, to mental health. We know, for example, that serotonin is, is uh, partly produced in the stomach and the the things that we eat actually affect um, uh, serotonin levels which has a direct effect on mood. There is now a lot of uh, unequivocal research that a diet that is balanced, that involves largely unprocessed food with a good variety of foods actually makes a difference to mental health as well as physical well-being. And I think one of the big issues for teenagers is sleep. So a lot of research is saying teenagers are one of the most chronically sleep-deprived populations in the world. And, and understandably, they've got lots of competing interests. It's tempting to sit there and follow Netflix series and, and keep going to late at night. But the issue around that is that, that again, sleep is, is an important part of both physical health and mental health. So really trying to to, to reflect on that and, and think about ways to encourage teenagers to get a decent night's sleep is, is important because, again, you know, 
for all of us, if we're tired, we tend to be more irritable, we tend to find it harder to cope with things, we tend to lose focus and motivation. So it's very much balance across all things, balance of the appropriate amount of sleep, the appropriate amount of good food, the good contact, good socialisation. And I think I've heard you use the term um, more green, less screen. So it's just the effect of being out in nature and, and um, natural sunlight. So things like the effect that that can have on your melatonin, um, being in a more peaceful environment, being exposed to nature can have a huge impact on, on well-being. We know that if you're sucked to a screen a lot of the time, again, the, the effects of the blue light can affect melatonin, can affect um, sleep cycles. So I think it's just, again, about finding that balance. Author Alan Baxter spent some time with us this year to talk about the influence of Kung Fu upon his work and the driving forces of dark fiction that keep him and his audiences ever entertained. Even though I didn't like school and I wasn't particularly academically inclined, when it came to learning martial arts and understanding martial arts and learning theory and learning the history, and I just absorbed that stuff like a sponge because I was absolutely interested in it. Um, and it's just one of those sort of natural progressions. There, there are three sort of levels of learning, really. The first level is that you copy. You just mimic what you're being shown. And then the next level after that is that you remember it. So you don't need to be shown anymore. You can do it on your own, and then you can start to understand it. Um, and that's usually as far as a lot of people, the vast majority of people, go. And that's usually enough. Uh, but the third and sort of ultimate level of learning is to teach it to someone else, because then you not only have to know it sort of intrinsically and inside out for yourself, you have to know it well enough to be able to make someone else as good and as understanding of everything as you are. And so people ask the damnedest questions, you know, and they have these strange... Everybody presents with different issues and things they can't do and you have to work around them and you have to learn them and stuff like that. So really, when it comes to teaching kids or adults, it's just a case of basically transmitting everything I know or almost everything I know um, in as clear a way as possible until they get it and it's also one of the biggest rewards of teaching is to see that revelation to see people's eyes go wide when they suddenly get something or to see them able to do something they couldn't do a year ago. I ask about teaching because a couple of years ago you were asked to develop the narrative for a video game for the Department of Education yeah. in regards to teaching teachers how to use video games for active learning. Right. Um, and it sort of blends into this space of if the more interested you are, the better you will learn. And I was wondering if you could tell me a bit about that. Game. Yeah, well, that, that was really interesting, actually. That came about because uh, the New South Wales Department of Education have recognised... Well, they recognise they recognized two things. One is GBL, which is game-based learning, which means that if kids are playing games and having fun, they learn a hell of a lot more than if they're being taught something just like we all do. If we just do something we love, we don't realise how deeply we're learning it because we're just enjoying ourselves. And so using games as a teaching method is really valuable. Um, and the other thing is they realised is that the, the, the gamification of everything is happening. Like, games are all around us more and more all the time. Um, so, you know, even on your phone, people are playing little games. It's in TV with reality TV shows. They're playing games, but that also feeds back to the audience because you get to get involved and you ring in or you dial in and all that sort of stuff. So gamification of life is inevitable and increasing, and game-based learning is by far a better method of transmission than any kind of rote learning. 
So the, the Department of Education decided that they wanted to develop a game. It's always a bit complicated to explain this, but they basically they decided they wanted to develop a game to showcase gaming to teachers so that teachers who hadn't done video gaming of any kind before could understand all the different types of video games that there were so that subsequently those teachers could then employ gaming in their lessons to use game-based learning for their kids. So the game I was asked to work on was basically, uh, it was sort of, it was like an adventure game that showcased every different type of gaming they could think of, like platforming uh, and puzzle solving. And, you know, if you imagine all the different types of video games that there are, you know, racing games, fighting games, platform games, whatever, there was a little aspect of each of those so that a teacher could sit down, start this game, and each sort of level they progressed would be a different type of game so that by the time they got to the end, they'd had a wide sort of variety of different types of gaming exposed to them, and then they could kind of think about how they could use gaming in teaching. And so so how do you break that down as a narrative? Do you establish it like, like a game? Well, you, you've got a boss yeah, at exactly. every level that they have to overcome in some sort of puzzle mode that, or first-person mode? That's what it boiled down to, yeah. The, when the team that were developing it were teachers and gamers, um, and they started putting these ideas together, but then they realised that teachers would get very bored of playing it if there wasn't some sort of you know emotional attachment to it and so what they realized was that they needed some kind of narrative to hold all these things together so there was a purpose of moving from one thing to the next um, and so they just they realized that they needed a writer in to build a story so that the teachers playing the game would want to know what happens next so they would finish a level in order to find out what happens next to get to the next level um, and so I was presented with this sort of framework and told, can you make a story to keep people interested? Um, and so we ended up developing what was basically a sort of third world fantasy slash steampunk kind of environment that involved time. You, you don't just want to stick with one genre at any stage, at any it. level, can you? No, no. I can't do it. And it, it had to involve time because there were other games that involved like, you know, space flight and stuff. So then we had to eventually work it up to a science fiction thing. So it kind of ended up being fundamentally three levels. It was a third world fantasy and then sort of post-industrial steampunk and then science fiction. Um, and the story that was woven between it was about this ancestral line. So the player character was a member of this ongoing sort of family and at the end of each you know each level would have lots of sub games in it and at the end of each level they would leave something for their future self to find when the world was ready and then when you play the next level you're playing a descendant of that character and so on so and so the you know the narrative was a little bit shoehorned here and there because we had to include the various gaming styles that they'd worked into the thing but it actually started working quite well in the end and so we had this whole idea that there was this darkness coming to consume the world and only uh, effort of many generations through many centuries of time could actually hold it back and so if you look on my website you can see the um the the youtube video of the sort of opening section of the introduction to the sort of medieval fantasy part of it and they de they developed and produced the first two levels of it and then I'd done the writing and whether they did the third or not, I don't know. And it's within the Department of Education, so it's not a publicly available game. But, yeah, hopefully teachers are playing it and hopefully benefiting. That sounds fantastic. It was really interesting. Yeah. yeah. Stella Award winner Heather Rose joined me for a conversation to talk about her rich history of writing and experiences all across the globe. 
I asked her what it takes to find another author who shares her ideals, creativity and vision to create an internationally successful children's book series. And the beautiful thing about writing in tandem is that Daniel will write the next chapter and I'll write the one after that and for a little while we'll go on like that in evolving the story and then we start writing into everything and until we get down to nobody knows whose sentences are whose. And that's who Angelica Banks is. She's the combinate, the complete combination. How did you find someone who shared your views on the world in that style? Oh, she found me. Yeah, Danielle is a dear friend and uh, she and I met each other in Hobart years ago and a, friend, a mutual friend said, you two have got to meet each other. So we did and we went for a walk on a beach and we've been talking ever since. And Danielle called me up, you know, six or seven years ago and said, I think you'll come up and have a cup of tea. And so I did. And uh, she said, I've got an idea that we should write a children's book together. And I said, hmm, what do you know? And she said well, there's a girl called Tuesday McGillicuddy. And I said, oh, that's interesting. I think she has a mother called Serendipity Smith and she's the most famous writer in the world. And she said, yes, and there's a dog. She's got to have a dog. And I said, his name is Baxter with a double R, but I don't know why. And that's where it started. And wow. every single piece, Danielle knows half the world and I know half the world. And it takes both of us, completely takes both of us. So we found each other and... It's brilliant. And we have very interestingly um, different skills when it comes to writing. So, I mean, she's a doctor of creative writing, so I have my own personal doctor and mentor of writing beside me every day. And uh, I write very fast and I write a lot of stuff. Danielle writes very slowly, very, very pedantically. And it's a beautiful marriage of skills. Well, that's it for this first series of Conversations with Writers. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back in a few weeks' time with another 13 authors, journalists, screenwriters, people from all walks of life with very different views on the world. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at ConversationsWW or on Facebook. You can like that page and apparently it does something. However, I would ask you to please, if I must ask a favour, to leave a review on iTunes as that really goes towards helping other people find us. Thank you so much for all your help and all your feedback throughout the last several weeks. It's been terrific and I look forward to speaking with you very, very soon.